This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking with a North Carolina chef who's pushing the boundaries of Southern food. Marwan Irani grew up in India, where his family ran a kind of bed and breakfast for spiritual travelers from the West. Marwan would sometimes play hooky from school to go sample the incredible street food of his hometown. But once he moved to the U.S. for business school, he found little resemblance between the Indian restaurants here and the food of his youth. After 10 years in the luxury car business, he decided to open a restaurant of his own called Chai Pani that brought Indian street food to Asheville, North Carolina, and that was recently named as the most outstanding restaurant in America by the James Beard Foundation. I've eaten there, and I'm here to tell you it's incredible. We'll talk about all that and the definition of mind-blasting hospitality on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Marwan Arani, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Where am I reaching you right now? I am in my little cottage at the back of my house in Asheville, North Carolina. It's actually Molly's little cottage, but I've appropriated it for this discussion. Oh, great. I love that town so much. You're very lucky to have landed there, and I know you've really become a part of the fabric of that community. Yeah, it's an easy town to love. It, It really is one of those few places where you kind of have no choice but to be part of the community. You're going to see people, you're going to run into them in the grocery store, on the street, in the restaurant. And Chaipani having become such a landmark, it's sort of unavoidable, occupational hazard. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, Marijuana, I want to start out by asking you about your name. Is that a family name? Is it a really common name in India where you're from? So it's not a technically an Indian name. It's actually a Persian name. And my last name's a giveaway, Irani, without getting too far into the history of the great migrations of the world. Up till about the beginning of Islam, the dominant religion in Persia was Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster was the prophet. And it predates Abraham. And so when the three wise men came from Persia to meet the baby Christ in the manger, there was probably Zoroastrian priests But as Christianity and then eventually Islam became the dominant religion in that part of the world, my people, the Zoroastrians, started leaving, sort of like, you know, when the Jews left Egypt to find the promised land. My people left Persia because of religious persecution and found India and settled there. And they came in many waves. So the first waves were called Parsis, and they kept a lot of their Persian customs and the language, but integrated fully with local Indians in the state of Gujarat. And then the last wave, which came maybe in the 1800s, at that point, Persia was known as Iran. And my great-great-grandfather that made that migration to India showed up under a colonial British India and was given the last name Irani, along with his new paperwork and his domicile. Not unlike Ellis Island, where a lot of folks found themselves with new names once they arrived in America. So Mehrawan is a Persian name. Meher means compassion. It's contracted and, and changed over the years, but technically it's a almost a 100% Persian name. So even Indians will sort of pronounce it correctly, but not be quite sure where it's from. But the average Persian goes, oh, Mehraban, and they know exactly <laughs> what I'm... 
So I, there's nothing Persian about me other than my name. I mean, I was raised, grew up Indian. My mom's Indian. It's sort of being, you know, Jewish way, way, way back when from Europe and coming to America. And now I feel both more Indian and American than I ever did Persian. Wow, what a great story. <laughs> so glad I asked that question. Yeah. So, Marijuana, you were born in London, but right. you grew up in a small town in India, right. I think from age four or so, right? Yeah, my mom was there with my dad for maybe two years, and then I was born and then they came back to India. So, tell me a little bit about the home that you grew up in. Can you paint a picture of it for me? Sure. So, you know, geography in India is very important. If it wasn't for British occupation, it would have been probably more countries than Europe. We had, I think, 500 princely states at the time Britain colonized India or over the time period that they colonized India, which is about 150 years. So the region I'm from, Maharashtra, the central state, it's on the West Coast. Maha means great. It's the great state of India. It's, it is to India what California would be to America, like in terms of size and economic impact, right? And Bombay, or Mumbai now as it's known, was, is the major city that sort of sits there right on the West Coast as this important port city. So when you come into Mumbai, it's coastal and tropical to a certain degree. But as you drive inland, you hit this really interesting geographic feature called the Deccan Plateau. And it's a steep jump in elevation of about 2,000 feet, give or take. And when you get to the top of it, and you climb up what's known as the Ghats, you get to essentially an arid, flat desert plain that stretches for many, many, almost 1,000 miles heading east. And so I grew up in a little village town on this Deccan Plateau, and the topography, the food, the people, the language were very unique to that region. The town I was born in was called Emmanagar. That's where I grew up. And what about the home itself? So the home itself was a typical multi-generational family compound. My grandmother from my father's side, she was actually my grand-aunt. Her sister, my dad's mom, had died at childbirth. But as was common in India at the time, some other family member just took over parental duties. So even though my dad's actual mother passed away, his aunt, her sister, immediately just said, well, I'll raise the child. And she had had a child of her own not too long ago, like three months earlier. So she just raised babies. So it was a multi-generational compound. My grandparents were there. My mom and dad were there. And I was there too. The only interesting thing about the house and the compound was in that town was a spiritual ashram for a spiritual master in India called Meher Baba. For your listeners, this is not uncommon for many parts of India to have a spiritual center. And we differentiate between our gods and our spiritual masters. Someone that, if you're spiritually inclined, can guide you on the path towards spirituality, regardless of what religion you're in. So Meher Baba was such a master, and he had traveled to America. And because of that, people from the U.S. and also he had traveled in Europe would come to his ashram, and he had passed away by then, but they'd come to visit the center and, and learn about his life and his teachings. And my grandmother, being entrepreneurial, and given the fact that her husband had passed away, opened her home, sort of a and b We also cooked and provided food for them. So I grew up surrounded by Westerners coming from the West and living at my grandmother's house. On, on the quest for spirituality. And most of them were hippies, straight up hippies. I mean, <laughs> right. this was the 70s, right? Yeah. Right. Plenty of California coming your way. Plenty of California coming through, exactly. So tell me about your grandmother. 
What was she like as a person? I mean, it sounds like she was kind of ahead of her time being so entrepreneurial, but tell me about your connection with her as well. So both my grandmother, Vilu, and my mother, Amrit, both found themselves forced into being entrepreneurs and sort of head of households at a time where the patriarchy didn't quite give women that kind of autonomy, but they carved it out for themselves. Not that women were necessarily held back. It was just more like most women in India growing up, regardless, played the role of the housekeeper or the housewife. But my grandfather had passed away, so my grandmother essentially needed a way to provide for herself and her family. And by opening up this home, she was able to do that. And my mother, you know, my dad was blind. So when she married my father, she knew that she would have to find a way to provide for her family because my dad couldn't work, at least couldn't work traditionally. He ended up actually being a sound engineer for some part of his life. But she, too, had to play the lead role in being the breadwinner for the family, providing for the family and doing all the jobs and tasks in India that are usually left traditionally back then to the men to do it, literally dealing with utilities and government and everyday sort of life in India, which can be very bureaucratic. So they both influenced the way I was wired to go out there and make it on my own and not be held back by the norms and traditions in place that usually can be a deterrent to someone wanting to do something differently, A. And B, they both, in my mind, placed the role of the female perspective front and center when it came to business and decision-making and, and how to navigate through the world as sort of the head of the household. And I think I can draw a direct line from those influences as a kid to how Chaipani Restaurant Group operates today. You know, what a curveball for your mom with your father becoming blind. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are some things that you learned from watching him navigate the world? Most people when they first met my dad, didn't immediately recognize that he couldn't see. He was so natural and comfortable and enabled. He had an incredible memory and an incredible sense of hearing. He would memorize the layout of wherever he was within minutes. So even if he went to somebody else's home, within about a minute or two, sometimes he'd ask me, where's the bathroom, where's the sofa, where's the table? And you could see him mapping it out in his head. And within minutes he'd be navigating through a new environment as if he knew where everything was. There was almost something supernatural about it. But I realized, you know, as I grew older, that what it was was him being extremely attentive, attentive to people's voices, what they were saying, the things they were saying. And I really saw him do it more for everybody else around him, accepting him and being comfortable with him and not feeling like they had to go out of their way to take special care of him. Yeah. Well, so you grew up with some remarkable circumstances and and with these clearly incredibly strong women. And it sounds like food was kind of a part of your life from the get-go. Tell me a little bit about your mom's cooking and some of the dishes that really stand out for you. I have to preface all this by saying that I realize that I was extremely privileged circumstantially. I mean, even though one could listen to my story so far and say, wow, father's blind, grandmother died in childbirth, my mom had to fend for herself at a time where things were difficult for a woman to do that, there were still privileged circumstances that created a foundation for me to be able to do what I do today. And one of them absolutely was the food part of it. So my mom 
grew up in North India, in Dehradun, a completely different background from my father. Very unusual in India for her and my dad to have married, because he's a Parsi, he's from one particular sect, they have their own traditions, they marry within their sect, and Parsis are very particular about marrying within their sect. In fact, it's one of the tenets, if you marry somebody outside, that person can never be a Parsi. My mom could never be a Parsi. And then my mom up in North India, Hindu Brahmin, again, they're very traditional. They marry again within their own sect, their own caste, their own religion, their own socioeconomic level. So for the two of them to have married when they did was already by itself extremely and highly unusual. The fact that my mom chose to marry my dad knowing that he had this affliction was also very unusual. Most parents want their kids to obviously sort of marry up, if you will, especially with women. And she just felt drawn to want to be of service and not just be in a marriage, but to be of actual use to her partner in life. And then lastly, opening up a home to all of these Westerners coming in, everybody had to scramble and figure out how to cook Indian food in a way that was delicious, tasty, and approachable to a Western palate without dumbing it down, without access to ingredients that were not native to where we grew up. So there was a inventiveness and a playfulness and a resourcefulness with the way my mom cooked that just completely informed my approach to food and what I like and don't like. Well, you also grew up in the hospitality business. There were people There were people coming over for yep. dinner every day, every, every night. Every day. And it was a formal affair. We had a really long table that could seat up to 30 people. It was full service like you see in Downton Abbey. You know, folks coming in from the kitchen with platters of food. Everybody was served. You got to remember, most families that were of a certain socioeconomic level were highly influenced by the British because all the social norms that they adopted were English social norms, you know, tea service and things like that. So I wouldn't say we were poor and I wouldn't say we were well off. We were kind of like making our way. They still kept up appearances, if you will, (laughs) especially with these Western guests coming over. And we were absolutely in the hospitality business. You know, I didn't really recognize that as a kid, but obviously looking back now, I do. (laughs) What's a suite that you would have gotten really excited about as a kid? Oh, Save or Savia. It's a uh, really fine vermicelli that's first roasted, dry roasted with just a touch of ghee, and then hydrated with milk or water and sugar, and then perfumed or scented, if you will, with cardamom and cinnamon, and then garnished with slivered and roasted pan-fried almonds and raisins. And my mom would only ever make it when it was a special occasion, a birthday, an anniversary, or a, you know, Parsi New Year. And again, the dish by itself wasn't particularly like, oh my God, this is the greatest dessert ever made. But as a kid, it signified like, ooh, something exciting is happening. Mom's making safe. If somebody recently asked me, like, how come you don't have it in the menu? I was like, huh, you're absolutely right. That <laughs> I need to bring that back. But it just feels like I don't want to have it in the menu as an everyday dish. I want to put it on the menu and something special is going to be happening. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's everything that was kind of wrapped up with it and all the excitement and, and the yeah. nostalgia. And I mean, if food doesn't make you nostalgic, I feel like you're missing out one of the great joys of food. <laughs> it's true. the memory, right? Even if you're nostalgic for something that you only discovered recently, like I just feel like one of the great gifts food can bring us is memory, childhood memories, happy memories. Memories of wonderful acquaintances and meetings and places you met. To not have that is just missing out on one of the most exciting things about food for me. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of memory, so much of your food is based on the street food of India, which must have been a huge part of daily life. Mm -hmm. What is the town that you think about or even the exact street when you think about Indian street food? That's easy. MG Road, Mahatma Gandhi Road. In America, quite often, there's always an MLK Boulevard in every city, right? Well, in India, there's always a Mahatma Gandhi Road, you know, our great leader. And usually it's Main Street. It's the street where commerce, business, trade happens. So as a kid, I would skip classes and wander down to NG Road and hope to God nobody saw me that would report me to my parents. And <laughs> I went there to have street food, to have pilpuri and wadapau and samosas. And because of just the amount of sheer traffic on MG Road, that's where the majority of the street vendors and hawkers would set up shop. And the other place that I would sneak off to and find street vendors would be there was an intersection in my hometown with the main bank, the State Bank of India, and the post office across from each other. And if you're wondering, well, what does that have to do with street food? Well, anywhere hordes of people are waiting in line to get inside to do business, a street food little enterprise will set up. And trust me, the Indian post office, you'd be waiting for hours to get inside back in the day. And the same with the bank. You know, I mean, we had a billion people trying to squeeze through tiny little institutions that weren't set up for this kind of massive humanity. And oh my God, the street food outside those places, I still remember till today. I mean, I can still... <laughs> Remember the taste of that illicit samosa that I skipped class to eat, and it was all worth it, even though every now and then I get busted and just get in so much trouble. <laughs> okay, so contrast that with the Indian food that you must have experienced when you came to the United States. So you come here for business school, Columbia, South Carolina. At some point, you must have walked into an Indian restaurant and gone, what is going on here? <laughs> you know that moment that our parents' generation talk about when the Wizard of Oz goes from black and white to technicolor, and it, was, it changed everything, right? Well, this is the opposite. Imagine the complete opposite. <laughs> going from full technicolor of Indian food to this black and white buffet in a strip mall in Columbia, South Carolina, which is where I was doing my MBA at the time. Honestly, I don't know why it affected me more than anybody else around me. I was there with other friends, and they were like, eh, it's okay, you know, like it, it's some reminder of home. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. How are you guys eating this? I don't want to diss on, you know, the family that probably ran this place. They were just doing what they had to do. But there was just never a sense of craftsmanship in it. It was utilitarian. It was just like, this is what Indian food looks like to Americans as popularized by the British. And this is what we're doing. It's a way to make a living. Many cultures probably went through this when they first came to America, and the restaurant being one of the easiest entry points into American business and entrepreneurship, you know, if you come with very little from wherever you came from. But for me, it just was an anathema. I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that such an incredible cuisine that was so broad, so varied, so exciting, so many aspects of it had been reduced to this narrow, monochromatic version of Indian food, you know, curries in a buffet. There was something about it just felt wrong at every level. Well, and I'm guessing you couldn't really trace any of those dishes back to a particular place or region or town, let alone well, street. 
No, there were definitely origin stories for each of these dishes. Like, what were the popular dishes? Chicken tikka masala. Well, we know the story of, you know, where that came from and how that evolved into a dish. Sag paneer, naan, tandoori chicken. These were all, A, North Indian in origin, B, upper-class dishes, usually served to royalty. Working-class families and poor families didn't make butter chicken at home and sag paneer and naan and tandoori chicken and dishes like that. This was a palate that the British acquired, by spending their time hobnobbing with the royalty in India and the upper class. And then, you know, as the diaspora of Indians to England started, these are the dishes they recreated over there. And then just by being in England alone, those dishes changed and then changed again and then changed again. So what we had in America was sort of a watering down slash evolution of the origin story that even started with a false premise that this is the food of India. Yes, it is. It's the food of upper class, special occasion folks in a very, very, very narrow socioeconomic sector of India. What we didn't see was what 99% of the rest of the country ate. After the break, I'll talk more with Marwan Irani about his time in Myrtle Beach, what he learned as a car salesman, and some of the menu items that have earned his restaurants so many accolades. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Asheville, North Carolina chef Marwan Irani. An Indian comedian, this guy Russell Peters, who's become very, very popular, is Canadian Indian, actually. I was watching him talk about when he was in India. He did a show, and at the end of the show, an Indian gentleman came up to him and said, Russell, you were fantastic. You were mind-blasting. And Russell goes, well, I think you mean mind-blowing. And the Indian goes, no, no, no. Anybody can blow minds, but you blasted my mind. (laughs) When I was trying to find our version of, you know, just hyperbole, like what's more than blowing someone's mind? It's like, we're going to blast their minds. So we co-opted the word mind-blasting. Will Guadara, you know, Danny from 11 Madison, He just wrote a book called Unreasonable Hospitality. And I think the essence is the same, right? The hospitality that's so incredible, it almost would seem unreasonable. So basically, mind blasting is our version of that. 
hospitality is so insane that it actually blasts your mind to smithereens. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story that demonstrates that. So at Chaipani Decatur, one of our GMs, this is way back in the day, like 2014, 15, noticed a takeout order of the counter that was still sitting there for an hour. So he looks up the number and calls the guy and says, hey, this takeout order is just sitting here. And the guy's like, oh, my God, my car broke down on my way to pick up this order. And I'm sitting here waiting for AAA to show up. It's a blown out tire or something. And Josh goes like, oh, well, that's a bummer. We said, well, where are you right now? And the guy goes, oh, I'm, you know, and it was like a quarter mile away from the restaurant. And he goes, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm happy to pay for the meal. And Josh goes, well, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it all. This is fine. Don't worry. I hope everything works out fine. Josh runs back to the kitchen. Refires the entire meal, packages it up, grabs a cold beer, puts it in a paper bag and writes on it, don't worry, be happy, and drives over there and finds the guy at the side of the road and delivers the hot food and the cold beer to him on the house. That, that is mind-blasting. That is mind-blasting. <laughs> and we call it like creating a legend, and I keep telling everybody, like, give me another mind-blasting legend. And we got lots of them, but that's the best one. Yeah. And that guy's told that story a hundred oh, times. Oh, a hundred times. Can you believe <laughs> Can you believe what this restaurant did for me? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's not why Josh did it. Josh genuinely was like, good God, it's 100 degrees in Atlanta summer. This guy's dying on the roadside. That's why he did it. Yeah. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I want to ask you about your experience of South Carolina more generally. So you go to work in a restaurant in Myrtle Beach. You met your wife, Molly, there. What was that experience like for you just being in that town and working in that business? A fabulous experience. <laughs> it was my introduction to Americana, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You know, it's like lovingly referred to as the Redneck Riviera, but it was all American. And for a kid coming from India, you know, yes, in the movies, I saw L.A. and New York and thought that that's what America really was, you know, big cities with skyscrapers and, and sort of this where every movie was set. Right. But then to end up in both Columbia, South Carolina and Myrtle Beach, which is three hours away, which is where I'd go to during my summers and breaks because there was a family there that I knew was my immersion into American culture, not just American culture, but Southern American culture. And I really wouldn't have it any other way. But quite often in our quest for a sort of multicultural, diverse America, we gravitate to our large cities. And we forget about small towns that absolutely have soul and heart and plenty of people that will also accept you with open arms. And here was, you know, a brown 20-year-old. Yes, were there instances where I, you know, experienced racism or bigotry or any of that stuff. Absolutely. Was it disproportionate to the amount of times that people welcome me in? Absolutely. You know, way far outweighed by the hospitality that I found in the South. So till today, I cherish and value that as an important lesson. We just can't write it off as this one stereotypical Southern America or small town America. And then working in what ended up being my wife's mom's restaurant, but at the time she was just my boss, was also amazing because not only was I experiencing Southern hospitality, I was providing it. 
little old ladies would come in and ask for me sometimes to be their server, even though I was a terrible, terrible <laughs> server, <laughs> because they just wanted to ask me questions. Where are you from? And is it true in India there's tigers roaming the streets? And, <laughs> you know, and have you ever been an elephant before? And it was just lovely and darling to sit there and chat it up with a bunch of blue hairs, as I get out affectionately <laughs> call them, about my upbringing and just the amount of interest they had in where I was from and what brought me to this part of the world. It was, ironically, my introduction to great food, working at that particular restaurant. Molly's mom was a classically trained pastry chef, had a, opened a French cafe, essentially. They made croissants and baguettes and French breads from scratch and quiches and beautiful California meets French-inspired cuisine. And the only place in town that was doing that and if I'd worked anywhere else in Myrtle Beach, I'd have probably grown up just thinking that fried fish is the standard. But here I got to appreciate a homemade vinaigrette, um, quiche made the right way. Um, it was a remarkable food experience in what would have been otherwise a food desert. What was the name of the restaurant? It was called Latifs, L-A-T-I-F-S. And Latifs is a Persian word, sort of meaning, you know, the best of the best. Molly's mom a Persian had traveled. word. I know. What a, what a, what a funny <laughs> coincidence. Molly's mom had traveled to India. She was one of those hippies that had come to my hometown to visit the Mayor Spiritual Center. So that's why I got the job in the restaurant, because of this family connection. And she was inspired a lot by the teachings of Hafiz and Rumi and had named her restaurant this Persian name. But it was a very beautiful California meets French cuisine restaurant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This was destiny. <laughs> yeah, total destiny. <laughs> So, Marijuana, you were in the car business for a long time, and I don't think that is a very common background for chefs, at least most of the ones that I've talked to. What are some things that you learned from that experience that made you a better chef and a restaurateur? Oh, everything, Sid. Everything. I think it should be a required course in every college to go sell cars for a semester. <laughs> think of this for a second, right? Yes, I work for Lexus. And I worked for Mercedes-Benz. So I was working for two very sort of upscale luxury car brands, right? There's no other place on the planet where you will learn more about human psychology, the way people negotiate. You know, think about this. You and let's say your partner walk onto a car lot full of apprehension and misgivings. And I have to learn how in 30 seconds to a minute to come across as being genuine, authentic, actually caring about you and not just selling a car and help you make after home, probably the single largest financial investment you'll make. And it's not even an investment because the minute you drive with a lot, the things just plummeted in value, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? A car dealership lot is an intersection of a lot of really serious human emotions, fear, anxiety. You're about to spend this massive amount of money, ego, you know, you're buying a Mercedes because of how it makes you feel. All these things that I think drive human behavior, whether you're in a restaurant, whether you're buying a pair of clothes, whether you're buying a watch, whether you're buying a car, all of those lessons of how to truly create a brand that tells a story that engages people, that makes them want to lean in, how to instantly for a server in a matter of minutes establish a real relationship with you, not a transactional one where you're paying money, we're bringing you food. I learned this all from the car business. Wow. I loved the car business. I mean, if it wasn't for the universe and its twists and turns, I may have still been in the car business, probably owning a dealership <laughs> at this point. 
Well, I love that. And it sounds like they might need to have a semester abroad for people at the Culinary Institute of America to go, <laughs> to go sell some cars. You, you learn about inventory. You learn about managing people. You learn about business. You learn about cash flow management. You learn about loans and banking. I mean, everybody thinks the restaurant business is about food and service. And no, that's just the product, right? The business is people, money, real estate, relationships. It's a lot more. And that you don't learn in the restaurant business. If you don't learn it somewhere else, you're coming in at a disadvantage. So Marijuana, you own a lot of restaurants now and manage a lot of people. But I want to start out talking about Chai Pani, which really launched everything. What were some of the first things on the menu? Oh, God, the sloppy jai. I remember when I put it on the menu, I just had this feeling like, oh, this is going to be huge, right? Because I was thinking of sloppy joe, it's sloppy jai. Like, they're going to love the when way it's this still tastes. on the menu, right? Absolutely. Not only still on the menu, but one of our gateway dishes, you know, like that gets people in the door where they feel comfortable ordering something and then they can broaden their horizons. The okra fries. I was so tickled pink when I came up with that idea. You know, it just was this beautiful play on Southern things. The kale pakoras. I was just tickled about that one because I never grew up eating kale. I had no idea what this vegetable was when I came to America. And the idea that when all else fails, batter and fry it, like that's the most Southern thing you can do. So that was fun to put on the menu. But I really wanted to make sure that there were going to be dishes that just made you sit up right and go, holy, what just happened? And the SPDP was one of them. It's this little spherical ball that's hollow. Imagine if you took a Ritz cracker and puffed it up into like a little mini football that's hollow. And then we poke a hole in it and then stuff it full of just incredible goodness. Mashed potatoes, onions, cilantro, green chutney, tamarind chutney, and tons of sweet yogurt. And then top it with this massive, crispy, crunchy mess of noodles called save. And you pop the thing in your mouth in one bite and you bite down and it shatters. And your mouth just explodes with cold yogurt and warm potatoes and crunchiness and softness. And it's that moment where you go, oh, this is Indian street food. And there's other dishes like that, Bhelpuri, which seems like the most nonsensical dish in the world. It's basically puffed rice, like Rice Krispie puffed rice. And you make a salad out of it with all kinds of other stuff. All these dishes are still on the menu. There's some that have come on and come off, but there's a handful that to me define the essence of Chaipani. And so good, by the way. I've only been to the one indicator, but everything is just such an experience. <laughs> Makes you want to turn the car around and go back right away. So, Marijuana, about this time last year, you won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant for Chai Pani. And in your acceptance speech, I heard you talk about the power of a restaurant to change people and to change communities what are some of the ways that you've seen that happen? A restaurant is really a remarkable nexus between a community and business. It can't exist without community. It's a space for exactly that, to create community. And so there's a powerful platform to do and be more than some of its parts. Here's an example. I've seen neighborhoods transformed when a restaurant opened there. I love Danny Meyer's restaurant group, Union Square Hospitality Group. And when he first opened Union Square Cafe in the neighborhood he did, it was just a neighborhood that nobody went to for anything. How do you, quote unquote, change a neighborhood? Open an amazing restaurant there. When we opened in Buxton Hall on the South Slope, at the time, nobody went to the South Slope. There was nothing there. 
us opening and a handful of other businesses transformed the south slope of Asheville to now this vibrant sort of economic center of town that's even got its own little business district. So restaurants have the power to change physically the feeling of the area. Then community can change because a restaurant has so much power to give back. What's the first thing everybody tries to figure out when it's the fan, quote unquote? How do you feed somebody and how do you get them water? And usually the first responders after actual emergency responders are restaurants and chefs showing up with food. Why? Because once you're safe and you're sound, we need to feed you. And when a fundraiser needs to happen for something important, there's usually food involved. And when a platform needs to exist for somebody to speak up against bad decisions or things that need to be taken care of, I have found that restaurants and chefs have very powerful voices. Maybe it's just the relationship most of us have to food, it being so primal, that the place that feeds you well, you pay a little more attention to what they're saying, what they're doing. And I know there's a lot of like the, hey, you know, you're a restauranteur, stay in your lane. And I would argue, no, 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 cooking food is actually just an occupational hazard of creating a space for the community to come and commune with each other, with the staff, with the people we have. I mean, I can go on for an hour, Sid, about how I believe most restaurants don't recognize how much power they have to make an impact in the community. Many do. Many do. And many have yet to realize that they can be agents of change in very, very powerful ways. Let me put it this way. The entire industrial food chain exists because restaurants did that. And the reverse is also true. We're changing the industrial food change and moving back to sustainable farming and agriculture, also driven by restaurants and chefs. It goes both ways. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of power. Yeah. So, Marijuana, I've seen you post about going back to India and taking some of your staff with you. What was the highlight of your last trip? (laughs) This is an interesting highlight, but one of our staff members, Raj, our GM at Botiwala in Atlanta, ended up getting such a severe case of gastroenteritis that he had to be hospitalized. Oh, gosh. No. No, no, no. So the rest of my team went back to America, and I stayed behind with him. There was no way he could travel. The highlight was we talk a lot about family and being there for each other and having each other's back. But from Raj to see that it was inconceivable for me to do anything other than absolutely be there for him was something that I hope he took back as an ethos that I want not just him, but everybody in the company to pass forward, that when we say we're here for you, it's not just lip service, that we actually mean it, you know, even if it's as dramatic or as drastic as being hospitalized in India for gastroenteritis. Separate from that, the entire team got to attend the wedding of one of our longest serving employees, Daniel Peach, who's our chef de cuisine, our, our culinary director. He's a born raised Columbia kid, fell in love with India, speaks, reads, and writes Hindi fluently, has been there multiple times, has lived there for up to six months at a time, fell in love with this beautiful Indian woman, and they got married in India in a classic Bollywood wedding that was one for the ages. So to be there with 13 of our Chaipani team members celebrating one of our Chaipani family getting married in India was just absolutely epic. And the food, oh, the food was amazing. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Well, Marwan, I just have one more question for you. Sure, yeah. What does it mean to you to be Southern? 
Oh, God. What it means to be Southern is to have roots, to feel like I found a place that I belong. And as odd as it is, most people spend a lot of their time wandering, trying to find that place that not only you can own, but also owns you. And to be Southern for me is to not just accept this is where I live, but for the place that I live to accept that this is who I am. And I found that of all places in the South. So I lived in California for 13 years and I never felt like I never felt like I belonged and I never felt like it accepted me. Whereas when I came here to the South, it was almost instantaneously. I felt like oh, I found a place where I belong and I found a place that's willing to accept me for who I am. I tell Molly all the time, I don't think we would have found the success that we had if we had tried opening this restaurant anywhere else except in the American South. So go figure, right? <laughs> well, keep doing what you're doing. You guys do some amazing things and the food is incredible and I can't wait to get back as soon as possible. And please open one in Birmingham if you're thinking about it. Love Birmingham. I've been there a number of times. <laughs> Got some good friends there. It's absolutely on the radar, so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marijuana Ronnie, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Sid, thank you for having me. Next time we'll talk a little bit more about biscuits and jam, but today was fun talking about Indian street food. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Marwan Irani. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with Aaron Franklin, the mastermind behind the wildly successful Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. We'll see you then.